Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a wonderful holiday show for you this evening. Treat Williams is here for a, just a, a great evening of hangar flying and chatting and talking about what's new with him and all sorts of other things having to do with aviation. I just uh, I look forward to this uh, event with him pretty much all year long. Before we get started, a couple quick things. First of all, we are nearing the end of this Fly to Win Challenge cycle that we're doing. We are giving away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. All you need to do is get the Social Flight mobile app. Just search for that for Android or Apple devices. Get the app, check in at uh, any of your local airports, and uh, that will get you in and entered in to win that headset. And if you manage to check in at multiple airports and get on our leaderboard, you get multiple entries into that challenge in order to win. And of course, we do this in order to support general aviation, bring social flight to you, and have tens of thousands of aviation events, both online and in person, all sorts of cool things and holiday gatherings that are happening around the country and around the world in our uh, little aviation corner of the world. So be sure to check all of that out. In addition, we're nearing the end of uh, our uh, Mustang Globe promotion to support Social Flight. Just uh, send an email to info at socialflight.com. That's info at socialflight.com. If you're interested in one of those uh, really fun uh, globes, that have a 3D Mustang inside of them, and you support um, uh, general aviation through that. Uh, tonight's broadcast is br uh, brought to you and sponsored by Whip Air. Uh, you know, we know them for their floats, their amazing whip line floats on so many different aircraft. But believe it or not, at their South St. Paul uh, Airport location where we have been, their facility is amazing. It's got uh, maintenance, avionics, interiors, paint everything you can imagine for your aircraft. And um, if you ever get a chance to get to South St. Paul, be sure to check it out and see it. Literally, these floats are the equivalent of building an aircraft structure, as I can tell from uh, what we've been working here on the Mustang. A lot goes into it, and it's worth checking out. Now, I'd like to introduce tonight's guest. Treat Williams is an actor, writer, a passionate aviator who's appeared on film, stage, and television with over 120 credits and growing. He first became well-known for his starring role in the 1979 musical film Hair and later also starred in films including Prince of the City, Once Upon a Time in America, The Late Shift, 127 Hours, 1941, which is one of my favorites, D.B. Cooper, and so many more. His performances have earned him Emmy, Emmy nominations for supporting actor in HBO's The Late Shift, as well as nominations for four Golden Globe nominations, two Satellite Awards, an Independent Spirit Award, among others. He's been flying for over 50 years, having owned a bunch of different aircraft, including a Navajo Chieftain, a T-6 Texan, and his current and perhaps ideal hangar combination of a Piper Cub and an Aztec, both of which are beautiful. He's on Chesapeake Shores, which you can see where he plays a pilot. Blue Bloods, We Own This City, and he is currently filming a new production that will air on the FX network, Capote's Women. I am absolutely thrilled to call him a friend and glad he could join us there tonight. Let me bring him on the line and uh, please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Treat Williams. Let's, hey, Jeff. Uh, hey, we need to get your camera on there. Uh, I'm sorry. Hey, there we hey, go. Boom. How, are hey. <laughs> how are you, sir? Three times is the charm. It seems <laughs> getting it right. I'm good. I'm happy. I, I just brought my family back. My daughter flew in from Los Angeles and, uh, I worked yesterday all day on set in New York and, uh, we all worked our way North and my son is here and our two dogs and it's the way Christmas should be. So I'm very, very happy. Oh, that's that's absolutely awesome. And uh, I, I got a kick out of, you know, uh, you had texted me a picture on set 
of, uh, of we'll talk a little bit later about the movie, but of this, of this, I want to show this really quick. Cause this is, this is a lot of fun. It, it's not often that people get to see a little bit behind the scenes of, uh, whoop, there we go. Behind the scenes of, um, you know, a production being made, especially a set. I, I may get in trouble. For, I might get in trouble for this, but I doubt it since they don't know, you know, where. No, what it, uh, yeah, we won't tell them. <laughs> All right. All that, right. But that's pretty cool. Like getting to see the set. Yeah, yeah. That was CBS's uh, uh, corporate jet. Well, it's somebody's idea of their corporate jet. I don't know what they flew. <laughs> Uh, but you and I are trying to find out. Maybe one of our uh, listeners will will give us uh, the information as to what did CBS fly in 1955? Yeah. What, what, what was the corporate aircraft in 55? So, if you know, can I had a very out. good friend whose father, we didn't know any pilots at the time in Rowayton, Connecticut. And his father flew out of Westchester. And every once in a while, he would come in in a jet, which we didn't see many jets, low level, and buzz the town of Rowayton, Connecticut right over Five Mile River. And it was extraordinary because we were, it was just the most beautiful, exciting thing to see a jet come over us at about 300 feet. He would have been busted had he been caught, but uh, then he would hit the sound and then, you know, climb back up and go into Westchester. That was very exciting. That is so, so cool. I also want to share with people pictures of your planes really quickly because. uh, Oh yeah, let's see. I want to see. Here's the hero shot. This, this may be cheap, the best combination of airplane and uh, and hero out if there. If I did it again, I'd put the airplane in front. But then, you know, <laughs> I think that was publicity. That's now. That's that's my Aztec. Yeah. Ah, uh, my Cub. On the grass strip where I kept it last summer in Manchester. So tell me tell me about your planes. Where's the, the six? What's that? <laughs> oh, oh wait, we got that. Hold on a second. I'll show you that one. That's my baby. There we ah, go. That's Gil, his first ride, my son. Oh, how that perfect. was his first ride. What was it like learning how to fly the T six? Uh, well, I'd already, you know, I'd already had a Cub uh, early on, and but I hadn't flown tail draggers for oh a good twenty years. And my interesting story: my partner Henry Urgoyji, we had a flying company for a while. Uh, he unluckily, unhappily, he passed away in, in, in a helicopter crash. Um, but before that, uh, we were very close friends, and he went down to Paraguay and bought one of the four airplanes that was the Paraguayan Air Force. It was an old T-6. And he brought it up all the way up to South America to the States, and then we, we rebuilt it. Um, so that was the history. I'm sure it was the question. I, I forgot what you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what it was like to transition into that. Oh, oh so uh, there, there was a group of guys flying out of uh, Van Nuys, and they called themselves, and still, maybe they're still there, the Condor Squadron. Maybe, maybe eight or ten T-6s lined up, and they would fly a lot in, in formation all over the valley and, and the basin. And there was a wonderful guy who uh, uh, I, went, I started training with him, and it was really ugly. I, I could barely get the thing down. I was bouncing it. I was, he said, just as long as you keep it straight, you're not going to hurt it. You know, just like every 19 year old pilot in 1939 or 1940. So eventually I began to figure it out. And, um, basically it was as long as you were doing 80 knots on final and flared properly. And then we practiced wheel landings and, 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 and three point landings. And eventually I got quite good at it. Uh, and then there was a guy, uh, who became my aerobatic instructor in the airplane because all I had done was basically I'd done loops and rolls in my first cup, which was a clip wing. And then uh, Randy Gagne was his name, and he was a very excellent aerobatic instructor. And uh, he really brought me up to speed on the airplane. Uh, and then I just, you know, I ended up uh, taking it up to Park City when I was doing Everwood and, and flew the heck out of it for, for about uh, 16 years. So it was, it was really, I think it had to be my favorite airplane. Oh it my was God, just wonderful. Awesome. Oh gosh. I just love flying that. I miss it, but there's one exactly like mine in the hangar with my buddy up here in Rutland. And, um, <laughs> I, he said, I want to get you checked out on this. I said, well, I'm, you know, as long as I'm covered by the insurance, he said, I don't have insurance. I said, I'm not flying your airplane ever. <laughs> so well, there you I'm, go. <laughs> Take me for a ride. That'll be fine. Yeah. 
but it was fun to fly it again. A couple, uh, last year, I flew it for the first time probably in 10 years, and uh, it comes back pretty quickly. You must not have gone with an empty seat too often. I mean, those are the kind of things that you always have someone to hop in. You know, I did a lot. I did. I, pra- I loved practicing, and I practiced a lot of aerobatics. And there were times when I really, uh, I think if you ever really wanted to just go fly, the T6 was the airplane that you felt like, I just want to go by myself. It was kind of the closest thing. I mean, I've always thought that aviating was my church. And in that regard, that was like, you know, the, uh, the, the, you know, St. Patrick's cathedral of aviation. It was really, uh, and I, I, I know this sounds hokey, but it was really an honor, uh, to fly that airplane that I knew had trained so many thousands and thousands of American pilots to fight in World War II. And uh, there was also this, I mean, it was really beautifully designed in the sense that the stick really went right through the center of gravity of the airplane. So if you were ever at one with the machine, it was the T-6, for me anyway. I'm sure if you had a P-51 or one of the fighters, it's even even more intense. But, But having that stick basically right over the CG was an extraordinary thing. You just really felt like, you know, you didn't really think about stick and rudder you were just you were just sort of you were part of the airplane really fun wow. and, yeah. and how, how do you compare i know there it sounds ridiculous almost to try but how do you compare something like that with the same skills that you use in your cub well i think everybody who flies cubs and and has flown the heavier airplanes is that there's just it's interesting there's a lot of movement in flying a cub with a stick but it's a lot less pronounced than on the six. I mean, the six, you really, you know, you're really yanking and cranking. And on the Cub, there's a lot of, 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 of movement to keep the airplane the way you want it, particularly on landing, you know. If you watch any of the videos, you'll see the guys are moving the stick around quite a bit. But it's just not so forceful. And it's very light. It's very, very, it's a very light touch. As as I have to say, the six's controls were very light because they were, they were uh, fabric. When we first got the six, the uh, elevator and the tail and the ailerons were metal, and we had them rebuilt because it was for, for some reason they they made them metal at, 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 in, in Paraguay, and so it made them for a much heavier feel. But once they went back to to uh, fabric, it's a very very light touch in the six, particularly the elevator. Yes, the ailerons you really had a you know what you could do is you could get high throw ailerons, which gave you a lot more aileron very quickly if you were doing rolls because rolls were very slow and sluggish um but i'm not doing aerobatics in the cub until i get a clip wing so you know <laughs> just little nice little wing overs and that sort of thing that's interesting uh, I, say, I, I, I say that, i say the controls are just lighter uh on the cub but but uh, the thing about the cub that's great is that you know I, and i that's what you and i talked about yesterday is that the uh it, even if you're just uh, taking off in a little bit of chop or a little turbulence, the, the ability to feel the airplane and, and to use your feet on takeoff and landing, it's all in the feet. And, you know, you get these guys that fly jets and they forget about their feet. They're always on the floor, but, on the, you know, but the, the cub is, it's all in the feet of any yeah. tail dragger, which is why I think guys should start in tail draggers. Just do five hours in a tail dragger. <laughs> So, I mean, you, you, I mean, you, you've obviously are an instructor. You've, you've, you've trained a lot of people. Do you think that we're losing this skill that, that uh, you don't hear about a lot of people flying tail draggers anymore and in, in, of the people that are getting trained? Yeah, I do. I, I, I think, um, I think there's something about, you know, I remember, I remember even back in the day when I started training for instruments, I kept, the instructor kept saying to me, get outside the airplane. You're stuck inside the airplane. If I tell you to, you know, uh, look at your, you know, look at, look at the ball, you know, step on the ball, we used to say, you know, particularly with P factor on climb out, um, you'd sort of look down and then you'd stay there. And then you'd say, no, get back out of the airplane again. Just glance at it, you know, glance at, glance at your instruments, figure out what's going on and then get back outside the airplane. And I think what's happening is that with these wonderful toys, and I love them too, is that we're spending, all of us are spending too much time inside the airplane. And I remember, I don't know if I told you about this, I remember the guy who does um, uh, a whole bunch, he, he interviews people in the airplanes, and he went up in, a, in, in um, uh, an eclipse with a guy, 
And he got up there and he said, what's the feel like? And what's this like? And what's that like? The guy said, I don't know. He said, I usually put the autopilot on at 500 feet, <laughs> take it off again at 500 feet above the ground. And I thought, well, why are you, I thought, why are you flying? Why do you fly? You know? I mean, you know, I know other guys that get out of an airliner and the minute they get out of it, they go back to their own field and get in a cub or in some small aircraft so that they can actually feel yeah. the airplane again, you know? The goal is to aviate, right? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, and I told you, I think I told you this, that I have friends who say, I, I so much prefer a treat going up with you uh, in the cub. And I say, why? I said, because you talk to me. Every time we're flying in your Aztec, especially if there's weather, your finger's up going, shut up, you know, stop. I'm listening. No, I'm listening. I'm, I have to hear my number. And you're always, you know, worried about, you know, changing frequencies or, 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 you know, uh, resetting if they give you, uh, you know, new headings. And in the Cub, you're just talking to me and we're just flying. It's so much more fun, you know, because you're sort of present. Whereas yeah. in, the, in, in the Aztec, I'm like, you have to leave me alone now. You know, you can't ask me <laughs> questions while I'm pre-flooding. I might forget something. It's true. It's about being present, right? I mean, I have always thought, I love that you call, that you say like, you know, flying is your church, the airplane's your church when you go flying. It is, it is, you, you need you've got all the peacefulness of the environment. And then at the same time, you're required to have a certain amount of focus that keeps you, I think, from thinking about the rest of the things going on in your world that may cloud your normal world uh, on the ground. It's kind of this perfect balance. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, there's a, I don't know. I, I really, uh, when you say it's your church, you know, the preparation, knowing where you're going to go, if you get in trouble, having an alternate, I mean, you know, it was a wonderful thing. These, these guys that I, I wanted to recommend uh, 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 who, who do these, uh, I guess you'd call them little flight lessons uh, mm -hmm. on YouTube. Um, and uh, it just went out of my head. I just had them written down. Um, I'll come up with it. Um, but they were talking about, you know, the fact that in, in a pre-flight, did you pre-flight when you land the airplane knowing where the winds are? which way you're going to turn off and where the FBO is. Do you pre-flight your flight all the way to the parking spot at the FBO? You should. And you should do it at your alternate too. A lot of guys don't do that. It's like, you know, I don't know which way, where's, you know, I, I tell me where the FBO is and get me there. You know. <laughs> so uh, I think that's, that's a part of it too, is just the enjoyment of the entire process of pre-flighting um, the flight itself and then the airplane and then enjoying, you know, getting into the instrument system. It's as much fun as flying the Cub, I have to say. You know, it, that, it's really interesting that you bring that up because when I watch Jake and Ben, you know, my boys learn how to fly and then they're still fairly you know, young, young in, their, in their flying with their licenses. They have that passion of just what you've talked about. That's probably been a long time since I've remembered, even though I, I love to fly, where, you know, they're anticipating the flight. They're, they're taking a piece of paper and writing every little thing down and cherishing that moment and that experience of pre-flighting everything and writing it just right and getting excited for the trip. Uh, that's all part of the experience. It's not kind of extra work to them or anything. It's the, you know, it's to maximize what they're spending on that hour of renting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've always wanted to have in my head what I have. If I leave Rutland, I know exactly in my head. I know if I'm taken off on runway one, I got to climb to 6,000 feet. This is all in my brain because it's you know embedded up for 45 years of flying here. You go up to the beacon and after 4,000, you can contact them, but they're not going to let you make a turn until they see you, which is around 5,500, 6,000. Then you're direct to Albany. And then after Albany, you're flying the airways down. And then when you get down, about 30 miles north of Teterboro, you're not going to be vectored in for either the ILS to used to then used to be an ILS to one nine. Now there is, or used to be, used to be just a six. That was the ILS. No matter what kind of a tailwind you had, you wanted an ILS. It was, it was runway six. And I flew that, oh God, thousands of times, I guess. But I loved, you know, the idea of in my brain, I could draw every waypoint all the way down. And pretty much when the descents were going to come and pretty much when I was going to be turned final onto the ILS. And then when I was going to make a left turn, what used to be taxiway Foxtrot, I don't think it is anymore, and to go over to, uh, uh, to, to the FBO that I used. Um, oh. I, I always thought that, 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 you know, and then I always had, if there was ice, I was going to go, I could go into, sometimes I would think about maybe going into uh, Bridgeport because over Long Island Sound, you're pretty much 
going to lose the ice on the windshield. Yeah, I had a heated windshield where I wouldn't have gone, but if you had ice that you didn't think was coming, you could usually get out over the sound, and that's where the warmer air was down wow. low. So, but, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about from the the you know TV and film perspective uh, of that. You know, with your background of aviation and knowing this so much, and yet you've done a fair number of of films and TV that all have planes in them or helicopters, you know, aircraft in them at some degree. First of all, what's what's that like kind of having the real knowledge? And then do you have to sometimes correct them to add a little realism in to to deal with that? Uh, or, or do people always turn to you when you're on set and basically go, okay, I know you're the pilot, so you tell us. Yeah, I mean that does happen if they want some information. I'm not I'm not one to 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 mouth off about what I know about flying. And I, I've always, people say, well, how come you don't, haven't done more movies where you're a pilot? And I said, because, you know, the idea of playing, being in a cockpit during a movie and not really flying to me holds no excitement. I want to get off the set and into a real airplane and go somewhere. I don't want to <laughs> pretend to be flying. I don't, I don't <laughs> find that to be a, an exciting prospect, you know. Um, but I will be asked on occasion, you know, how would this work or, or, what would they do here? Uh, but I don't I haven't done that many where it where cockpit knowledge, you know, was necessary. I, sh- I sure wish I'd been on a few because we were talking about this. That I've always been astonished by how many films guys are flying a, a difficult ILS approach and they're never looking anywhere but outside the windshield of the airplane. <laughs> like they're flying like driving a car. Nobody said, "Dude, look at the look at the the, the panel, please." <laughs> glance at the panel and i said to you earlier before we went on the air that i thought the best line was in 2001 space odyssey in the pod when he's recovering the body of his friend his eyes going to the body and then down to the screen uh which basically was an early version of synthetic vision on his screen he was seeing a very basic synthetic vision as his claws were very delicately grasping the body of his of his dead friend and I thought that looks like a guy really flying something, you know. And very seldom do I see it where I believe that somebody's flying. More and more so now, I think people are doing more research and, and being a little bit more, uh, uh, I, I guess, uh, more respectful of what what it takes to fly an airplane. Yeah, um, at least a, at least a little bit. Um, what was your, I guess, fa- you've done uh, quite a few, few films that have involved aircraft or in some way. Um, is there one that comes to mind as being kind of your favorite that you've dealt with? Oh yeah, definitely. Well, uh, I did two with Art Scholl, the great aerobatic pilot. And, uh, the first one, uh, let me get it straight. The first one was with pursuit of DB Cooper, where I played the first guy that ever hijacked an airplane. And there was a chase scene with Bob Duvall, where basically I'm chasing him in a car, uh, uh, with a biplane. Um, and, I lose the wheel and all, and art was art. What they done is they rigged controls for art in, in, uh, what was the bin that was used for, it was a spray plane and he was in the bin with rigged controls. And so when the camera was on, he would duck down and I would fly the easier stuff. And then the, the difficult stuff, he would put on a wig and be me in the pilot seat and he would fly the, the stunt stuff. Um, but I think that was the most fun because that was a fun airplane to fly. It's the, it's the biplane that was World War II trainer, just on my head. Um, oh, the Stearman? It was a Stearman. Yes, thank you. The big yellow Stearman. And then Art and I did another uh, sequence. Uh, I guess the, the second one was with Art where I did a fight with him in, in a 172, and they, they wired me into the airplane without a parachute, and I was standing on a little wooden platform that was on the wheel, above the wheel, uh, on the spreader. And uh, I don't know why I said yes to that, but I did. I mean, he landed at, you know, 70 miles an hour with me standing on on the wheel. And the fight was no good. We did, we did it on the ground. It was much more interesting because it was all bumpy and it was much more violent. Um, that was actually quite wonderful to work with him again until he passed, of course, on Top Gun. Uh, doing the, the, the aviation sequence. And there was another sequence which I thought was exciting because it was a DC-3. And Nick Nolte and I had a fight scene and Nick threw me out of the DC-3 to my death. But they had a scene where I was just fascinated where they had the gear down on the DC-3 
and they actually put all this kind of uh, cork, I guess, to make it look like the 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 uh, DC three was landing gear up. In fact, the gear was down, and it just kind of flew into this kind of big uh, uh, four foot load of cork on the runway. I don't know how they did it, but but for they real? did. Yeah, for real. You, you, the sequence is in the is in the film. You'll see it. Looks just like it's landing gear up. In fact, it's not. It's got the gear down, but it was it had all this stuff that looked like dirt, and it wasn't dirt at all. It didn't hurt the gear. It didn't hurt the fuselage. So I'm going to go check that one out. That is that kind, of, that kind of stuff was fun. You know, I mean, that was really fun. Then I directed a film that Dave Mamet wrote, using my T6 as the star, and that was a lot of fun because we 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 had all the flight sequences shot uh, at the time by a very new new camera. Um, uh, from a, a Bell 206 helicopter, and uh, Randy was flying my six, and we went out to the to the island off of L.A. Uh, and uh, Catalina, and did some beautiful flying sequences for that. That was a lot of fun too. I mean, when you're really flying for a film, it's really fun. But if you're <laughs> sitting in a cockpit all day pretending to fly, I'd rather be at the airport. You know, <laughs> don't want to do it. Harrison did it in airport Air Force One. I guess he, you know, he played the the, the the president of the United States. So Billy Macy played the pilot. Of course, Macy is not a pilot. so <laughs> But it was fun. I, mean, I taught John Belushi how to use a stick and how to fly. He had, he was flying a, a, in the movie 1941. Yeah, did, I was going to ask you, like, did he, did, did you give him any instruction for that? Cause I did. I just, I just, I put him in a chair and I said, you know, this is what happens. And I put my hands on his shoulders and said, pull the stick back. And I, you know, I pulled it back and I said, now move the stick to the left. And that's left. And then I told him there are three axes of flight. And these are the three axes. I twisted them and said, that's y'all, you know, and this is roll. <laughs> and this is pitch. He said, I don't okay. have anything to see that footage in itself. Cause I want to, I want to know if he was this serious or he was being a, a wise guy during all no, that. No, he really wanted to know. He, he, you know, amidst all of his craziness, he really wanted to, to make it look real. So yeah, he was, he was a, he was very uh, enthusiastic about, you know, he wasn't kidding around. He wanted to know what it's like to fly. You know, as, as I told you, I, I had also, uh, uh, one of, I told you who I took, took up for just before they did Top Gun. And, uh, we, we did some, some, uh, parabolic uh, flying with, you know, I made, I made, uh, what's his name? Dennis Quaid weightless. He wanted to be weightless. So I took him up and did a parabolic and told him to hold the pen and, now let go of the pen and the pen's floating and everybody's up in there, you know, in their seatbelt for about 10 seconds. So he said, okay, now I know what it's like to be weightless. Let's go back. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready, I don't I'm ready feel so to get on the ground now. <laughs> it doesn't feel too good. Yeah. Yeah. So. You were, uh, uh, but I took a lot. I took, I took Chris Pratt up. I took so many, I mean, took all the actors on Everwood up in the six and got them, most of them nauseous. Oh, know. really? Oh God. Yeah. How yeah. was it with Chris Pratt taking him? He was he was all game, but he got he felt sick as hell. And Bar, uh, Marcia Cross, I took up. She was almost she was lying on the pavement after we got down. She said, Let me just get out of the airplane. She just sat down and said, "I just need to hold on to the ground for a minute here." That was high. <laughs> she said she felt sick, and so I I did some very tight turns to get the Seneca down before she got sick of my airplane. You know, I didn't want to. I'm sure that helped her a lot. No, I don't think that was the right thing to do now that I look back. <laughs> but uh, usually on any show, I've got, somebody's going up with me, you know, so. That's awesome. Well, you know, you had, your character had uh, the same aircraft you, you have, right? On uh, uh, Oh, yes, on Chesapeake. And that was quite extraordinary. I mean, that was the most, the most self-control I have ever, ever had to. I hadn't flown my airplane, that airplane. I'd already sold it by the time we started Chesapeake. So it had been about two years. And we were at a small airport uh, called Qualicum. And uh, they put the camera operator in the right seat. And they said, why don't you just go out on the runway and get it up to about, you know, 60 miles an hour, which is about 10 knots slower than takeoff. And I just, you know, I did a full pre-flight. I took it out, got to the road, announced that I was taking, that I was going to do a high-speed taxi and i went full power and i tell you that it took everything because the guy next to me didn't have a seatbelt on the guy behind me was the pilot lying on the ground behind me hiding and i thought if i rotate and i fly this thing i am gonna be so much trouble treat don't do it don't do it 
<laughs> power back, you know, hit the brakes. So I was like, oh man, I just wanted to go. You know? <laughs> oh, gosh, that was a that was what a wonderful airplane, the the, the chieftain. You can't really convince fun. them to let you do the flying there. You know, we had uh, Kevin LaRosa on the show. He said, if you turn the right, you, you ask the right people the right way and, uh, and and press the right buttons, they might let you do it. Well, I, I probably could have done it and gotten away with it, but I was putting somebody at risk. Oh, no, no, uh, I don't mean that. I mean, like, literally approved, like getting get, get, getting them to let you do it uh, and be the pilot. Well, there were things that they did let me do. When I did a film for HBO, we were shooting up in um, – in Seattle, Washington, and then we had to move, the whole crew had to move down to, and I got a whole lot of crap about it, but we had to move down to uh, uh, where we were going, uh, down to the Southwest, it'll come to me. Mm. Uh, and and I wanted to, you know, move the airplane between, before the, the next uh, week of shooting, and they were, HBO was just totally against it, and I had to pay a very high insurance price to, for me to be able to fly the airplane down to get it down. Uh, but I did, I finally got it down there and they let me fly, but it was, it was a, it cost me some bucks insurance wise to do it. Uh, well, you're, you're, you're irreplaceable treat. What can they say? You know, that's <laughs> here's the thing about that. That's why you don't want to get a big ego. You're irreplaceable until the day they finish shooting and then they don't <laughs> give a crap about you whatsoever. But as long as you're shooting, you're very special. And the minute they're done, you're you're toast. It's like goodbye. Go fly yourself into oblivion. We don't care. But you know, when you're on film and it's not done yet, you know, you have to it's it's a very difficult situation for them if you got hurt. You know, they've got a problem. So, so speaking uh, of filming and being in the middle of it, tell us about uh Capote's women. Tell us about uh, it. It's just, uh, it's just. Let me get so, centered. You're cut off a little bit in the frame right now. I'll be over. I'll move over. I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. How's that? Hello. It's just so exciting. It's, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's Naomi Watts and Diane Lane and Chloe Sevigny and uh, I, I can't even imagine. And, and Tom Hollander is Capote. Molly Ringwald's in it as well. Molly Ringwald. And uh, Demi Moore, Demi Moore is in it and they're all wonderful. And it, it's uh, uh, Ryan Murphy has become one of the top producers in Hollywood. And he did something a couple of about last year he did with uh, called uh, feud. And it was about the battle between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford in the making of whatever happened to ba baby Jane. And uh, it was very, very successful. So this is really called, this is called Feud Capote's Women, and it's really about Truman Capote at the height of his fame. Well, it basically covers him for about 20 years, but basically it's just after he has this, had this astonishing success uh, uh, within Cold Blood. And he loved society, and he kind of, the women loved him because he was a great friend. Their husbands didn't mind them going out with this little gay man. There was no threat. So he befriended all of the highest, most elegant women in New York City uh, and would take them out to dinners and they would eat at La Cote Basque, this famous restaurant for lunch twice or three times a week. And then he wrote his next book. And in the next book, they also uh, told him all of their deepest, darkest secrets about their husbands and their husbands' uh, failings and all that sort of thing. And um he wrote a book and put one chapter out in the book and it, he basically outed them and all the stuff they told him about their husbands. And, um, that was the end of his career. That was the end of his, uh, relationship with the women. And it wasn't long afterwards that he died of drugs and alcohol. He destroyed himself basically by sort of, um, how do you put this crapping all over these friends who had, who had been very, very dear to him? I don't know. He was very self-destructive in that regard. So mm. anyway, Tom plays him beautifully and Naomi uh, plays Babe Paley, the best friend. She's the wife of William S. Paley, who basically started CBS and was the face of CBS for 50 years. And I played Paley. Uh, and so, and some of the things I did were really unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can't go into You're it. You're not going to be a good guy? <laughs> well, a lot of the women thought he was a good guy, but he only had one wife and he had a whole lot of girlfriends. And uh, <laughs> he couldn't help himself. Let's put it that way. Way before me, too. Um, and uh, he was, yeah, he was quite the player. Um, and it's pretty apparent in the show. Uh, uh, but everybody has their, you know, the, 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 this is an interesting period in American uh, culture where society was so looked up to and everybody wanted to be a part of high society. I don't think that's the case anymore. But in New York in 1950s, you wanted to be invited to the cotillions and the balls. And he had this one ball called the masked ball. It was the big, big party and Sinatra, Mia Farrow, everybody named that person. He was close to presidents. He knew everybody and he was invited everywhere. He was the toast of the town because basically in cold blood, um, pretty much changed nonfiction forever. It was it was a spectacularly well written book, and um, uh, he. But unfortunately, he basically self destructed. So it's basically uh, with Tom playing him so beautifully. It's really uh, about the friendship between him, he and Babe Paley, and about the dissolution of him and how he pretty much descended into drugs and alcohol. I used to see him at Studio Fifty Four dancing with my producer from hair, really? the two guys, little, little guys, both about five foot five on the dance floor, <laughs> dancing on the dance floor. And so I, that's the closest I ever got to meeting him. So, wow. Yeah, well, you guys were all, you started as a dancer, right? Well, or I think that, that's an argue, that's arguable. <laughs> I was musical. You know, they, they talk about people being a triple threat. I was like a two and a half threat. I, I, I moved. I could move well, but, you know, we all cheated in Greece. We all pretended to dance, but I, many, very few of us really uh, trained dancers. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, I, 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 I faked it enough to get through hair, you know, and then I hung out my dancing shoes and started a film career. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. But I was flying all through that. I was flying all through. I, I think I bought, when I was the understudy in Greece, or I got the lead in Greece, I bought my first airplane, which was the Clipwing Cub kept it out in New Jersey. And then uh, I, I then bought the Cherokee 180, which I got my uh, instrument and my commercial in. And then I bought my Seneca out in California when I started making a little bit of money, enough money for the Seneca. In those days, the Seneca was $110,000. Now they're like a million. You know, <laughs> Everything's like a million. Oh my gosh. I don't know how people learn to fly. Do you know what I paid? You know what I paid for a flight lesson in, 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 in Lancaster Airport in 1973. In the spring of '73, I got my license. I was driving a cab and singing at parties, and every time I got twenty-eight dollars, I would go and take a lesson. Twenty-eight dollars paid for the fuel, the airplane, and the instructor. Twenty-eight bucks a lesson. Wow! Go try to find that now. <laughs> <laughs> It, I do feel bad for everybody. It is, it is crazy what has happened, even within the last few years. Uh, we're we're make, kind of making this, this stuff that realistically, realistically aircraft are not that complicated. Let's be honest, right? They're handmade, which makes them expensive, but they're essentially, you know, hollow aluminum shells that are, there's not that much to them, at least not when you compare it to cars and other things. And my God, what we're charging now. Aren't, aren't there, Companies that are trying to build a training aircraft that isn't killing young guys so they can get their, their rating. Is, is, is there one that you could mention that is? Well, uh, I think there's many. I mean, when you go to some of the shows, you see quite a few aircraft now that are, do, that are quite good trainers uh, out there. Um, and they're, they're remarkable. I mean. Um, uh, do, do, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say that what's interesting is a lot of them have come out of the Czech Republic. Uh, what you used to be the Piper, you know, Piper Sport or Piper Sport Star, now the Sport Star. That that those aircraft are remarkable, wonderful. There's 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 just tons of them, but the prices continue to to you know be very very high and in high demand. Do you think it would be forget you know as we said we'd love to see guys get into a tail drag or a cub or something there first. That's what I'd like to do when I stop doing it. I don't want to. I actually don't want to work for the spring. I'm going to take my airplane all the way around the country, go to Santa Monica before they close, you know, Ooh. land there, work my yeah. way, you know, a gastronomic flight all the way down to New Orleans and then Sign Austin, me up. <laughs> then Los Angeles and then up to the wine country and then over where I kept my plane, you know, in 
Utah, then my wife will bail and I'll do the hard stuff coming home. But do you think that a, a, um, a, a young pilot would be best served in a 172 with a six pack without all the fancy bells and whistles before they got into, uh, you know, the Garmin 1000? Absolutely. What do you think about absolutely. that? I think it'd be absolutely wonderful to be focused on stick and rudder to start them in aircraft, that their head's out of the cockpit, and that they're getting a feel for things, that they know what they say, what, what correct sounds like and feels like and kind of see the pants uh, instead of being I, wooed I kinda, by the Yeah, I kind of think that a six-pack was the way in which you had to discern from those six instruments what, was, what, what the trend was in the airplane, what was happening in the airplane, and you had to sort of take all six pieces of information and turn them into what you were doing in the airplane. Yes. And I sometimes feel like if you start with the Garmin 1000 or, or, or my, you know, my uh, GTX, you know, the 750, you're, it's just, it's, the information is coming at you and sort of, it's making it singular for you, which I think is wonderful. But I wonder if there's some added advantage to 20 hours with a six pack where you say that's an altimeter, you know, that's a rate of climb indicator. That's your heading indicator. You begin to say, oh, I see how these work in conjunction with one another. And then you get to see the instrument that puts them all together for you in the modern way of, of, of the of the Garmin or, or whoever, but Abadine, yeah. whatever company you use. I think that I makes sense. Think, I think it's nice if you're, if you're as a pilot, if your understanding and feel of the aircraft starts from the outside in, if it starts from understanding the larger forces at work and the way it feels and how it operates and all of that without head down and then migrates its way in. I also think that, you know, one of the challenges that we've always faced, I, I used to be involved in avionics uh, development and uh, kind of the dirty little secret of all of that is that with the analog world, you don't have to interpret anything. It's, it's instinctive. You Correct. can see that corner of your eye, and Correct. your brain doesn't play a direct role in interpretation. It only sees Correct. and knows. Once you start going to speed tapes and you start going to things like that, it becomes more difficult because you have to process what a number means instead of kind of just a the corner of your eye. Well, you know, also in your airspeed indicator, your needle hat was pointing at 12 o'clock or 6 o'clock or 3 o'clock. When you're looking at your needles, you knew, you know, if you were flying at 5,500 or let's say 6,000 in IMC, that needle was right on, you know, 12 o'clock. Right. So it was almost easier in a way to just to, to differentiate where you were and what you were doing as opposed to looking at the little numbers either side where you're going, oh, where am I? Where? Now, I the know. reality is we could also be dating ourselves with this discussion. <laughs> oh, I don't mind. I, I'm actually very proud of the fact that I had to fly holes with a single VOR by switching frequencies to catch when I was passing the point at which I could make the turn. I mean, and then, you know, go to a second VOR or flying a, an NDB approach. I mean, that was really difficult to do where you drag the needle and you had to accommodate for a crosswind and you'd, you'd go back to the heading to see how much crosswind you had and then you'd have to adjust. I mean, all those things were, I, to me, I loved all that. I thought that was a great kind of training and it was very Ernest K. Grand Fate is the Hunter training, you know. I, uh, that was great. I mean, I, I remember how excited I was when I bought my Seneca. I put in a new device in it. It was called a DME. And all of a sudden, the stopwatch stuff stopped being so necessary. These kids probably listening right now. Probably, but you had, you had to have a stopwatch. You were timing stuff. And you didn't know whether you had a headwind or a tailwind. So your timing was not quite perfect. But you were timing your descents on approaches, you know. <laughs> That's DME. right. Now on approach plates, you look down at that, you're like, what are those times for? Yeah, DME then was like GPS now. It was the coolest thing to have in aviation in 20 years, you know, that you could you tell you. one of the ones with rolling dials that like? No, I think it was, no, it wasn't analog. No, I, I think it was, you know, pretty modern. It was, uh, I can't remember, but it took up the, the whole co-pilot side of the airplane was a DME. There was nothing <laughs> yes. else. When you I got my Bonanza, it had in it one of those, like, it, it was like the old flip flip digital clocks of the little things. You know, it would roll, had a little, look like little an odometer. Down, like your alarm clock. <laughs> exactly. It looked like an odometer in front of you. And in the tail, I remember pulling out about 20 pounds. Oh, look at this. I don't need this box anymore. We can take another I'd like person. To take some, I'd like to take somebody. So we're going to fly out to Los Angeles like I did in my 180 with nothing but one VOR head. We're not going to use anything else the whole trip, you know. And when we get out west, you're going to have what's called a 
changeover point where your needle starts to get all floppy, you know, and then you change it over. It's still floppy, and it starts to get a little bit better, a little bit better <coughs> as you get toward the next, you know, VOR. And you had to sort of, t you had to announce where you were because they, they couldn't see you anymore on the radar. That stuff was, I think I was very happy to be a part of all that. How many guys can say, I flew my cub uh, into, when, when Reagan uh, fired everybody, uh, all of the controllers, the airport in, uh, in Connecticut, um, what's um, the one? Just up, Bradley, uh, New Haven? No, 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 small airport, just further west. Uh, I should know it because we used to drive up, it's on Route 7, and they had a fair. Westchester and anyway, Danbury. Danbury. And I would, I would call Danbury, so I'd come into my cub, and I'll be there at, you know, 3.30. Could I have the gun? And I say, sure, you get the gun. And I'd fly overhead 1,000 feet above the pattern, and I'd get the two green blinking light. That means join the pattern. And then I'd get the, the solid green, you know, and I'd get off the runway, and then I'd get a red light and look at the red light. Then I'd get a green, which means go ahead and taxi to the, to the FBO. Nobody got the lights. I mean, I don't know anybody I could talk to that said, did you ever fly via the lighting system? <laughs> And you had to learn it. opening his cards in his book to see what the lights mean again. My God, I haven't done this in 10 years. Oh, I think it's cool. I think it was, I just, I'm very lucky that I, I, I've been a part of this extraordinary uh, change in aviation. You know, I feel like I, you know, like I was driving a one horse carriage. <laughs> now I'm flying a Maserati. You know, it's just like amazing how much has changed. The hard part is keeping up with it. Yeah. It's He's in boots up here in Vermont. You know, it's just the changing is so much. You go, ah, oh, don't tell me there's a new thing I got. I want the new toy. What's the no. newest? You got to go simple. Speaking the of new skin, one. You put those on your cub. Uh, eventually, I think I will. The problem is we're not getting much snow up here anymore. You know, hmm. so you put the skis on, and all of a sudden you're stuck. I think it's almost better not to have them because at at our airport uh, where I keep it. I don't usually keep it in the winter because of all the weather, but at Cambridge, um, that runway gets nice and hard in the wintertime. And guys fly on wheels all the time, most of the winter, because there's so little snow anymore. Mm. Usually it's hard packed ground, so you're better off with the wheels. I would love yeah. to learn to fly. I've never flown on skis. Have you? Uh, actually, my son Ben did near here, uh, uh, which was uh, a lot of fun. He's had I have no idea what it feels like. Do it. He's the only one in the family with a tailwheel rating, so I, I got to fix that. Well, we got to get you up to speed. Get over here, <laughs> pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. we'll get the cub. We'll, we'll get you guys in the cub. They have the convertible <laughs> ones that you can, you know, adjust whether you, how the skis are working. Have you ever gone into uh, the ice runway, the Alton Bay? No, I, and that's another. That's a bucket list. You know, if, if that opens guess, up this I winter, I guess brakes, brakes no longer mean anything on that. It's in New Hampshire, isn't it? Yes, Alton Bay. Uh, Have you uh, done it? Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire, Ice Runway. I've gone there numerous times. It is wonderful. The yeah. People who, who shout out to the people who who make that happen every year and put all the effort into that runway. It is. It's gorgeous. It is well maintained. Uh, it, there's a lot of people that go up to it. They have a winter carnival, and the nicest part is you can actually park somewhere and then go into a restaurant for hot chocolate or whatever you want to. <laughs> I always thought I was the guy that would like, you know, slowly come to a slow stop, taxi off the runway, and then go straight on down to the bottom of the lake. Somehow I'd, I'd find a spot that was, you know, weak ice. No, well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it is definitely worth doing. Make sure. If it's going to happen this year, you got to get yourself there. All right, I promise. I'll do that, and we'll get you in the end of the cub. Fair enough. Exactly. We get Daniel, which we will. So what is what? So what's next for your airplanes? What next? What's next for you? Well, let's see. We had a really interesting uh, issue uh, with the uh, Aztec, wherein the, the 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 wheel bearings basically just failed, and it turned out that there were some springs missing, had not been put in, and there were some bolts that were improperly improperly put in. So when Charlie, my partner, was taxiing, luckily just taxiing the airplane, it just wouldn't it wouldn't go. It wouldn't move, and it, one wheel locked up on him. And so they got it back to the hangar, and they, you know, got it up on jacks, and sure enough, the, the entire brake system had failed. So we took both wheels off and completely replaced all the brakes, and um, we got those springs that were supposed to be there that for some reason some mechanic decided not to put them back on. 
And so that's now, I flew it, oh, I think I sent you the tape of me uh, landing. Um, I hadn't flown in two months in the airplane. And I got back from one of my sessions down in New York on this TV show. And I got, it's just so great to get back in the airplane and just, you know, slowly just get yourself back up to speed. And we went over and we shot an approach. And uh, my friend Dan Brown, he just, he actually just bought uh, uh, a, a, the, uh, uh, Baron. He bought a Baron that had belonged to Caitlyn Jenner. It was her airplane. I said she was a pilot. Yeah, she is. But anyway, he we we went up flying, and I just the first approach I, I flew, and I was like ten miles behind the airplane because I hadn't flown in two months, and I was just like everything was just oh I got to do this oh I got oh she can maybe she get the gear down. You know, and then the you second are a good actor, then because I'll tell you from the film from the little no, video, no, I have to think, it you looked saw like the, you really had your act together. You saw the second approach, and I said to my landing, I said, Dan, I don't know who that guy was that flew the first approach, but he sucks. He shouldn't even have a license. This guy's good. This guy's a good pilot. But that's usually the case, you know. It's like a golf shot. You know? um, but it was great to get back in the saddle again, and and uh, I missed it. So it's great to be flying again, but. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting approach. That approach it goes right over my house, uh, coming into the runway one at Rutland. It's uh, when you're flying it uh, in in visual conditions, you look down and say, "Gosh, I never knew we were we were really close to the mountains down there here on the on the approach. You're really much closer to the hills than you think you'd be. You know, better not to see it. Um, but so the, anyway, we got that. That's flying again beautifully, um, and the cub we're just waiting. The the Aztec will go into annual in January, and the Cub will also, I think, as we speak, is going in for its its annual. And and I'll be back up to speed. And then when I finish this thing in uh, early March, I'm not looking for work. I'm I'm flying. Yeah. Well, we're gonna I try just, to take some trips. We'll try to make we something take some trips. Yeah, that. come down with me. Part of mine. Part of my trip. What? Jump off. Jump off. Do you have some planes on your you have some planes on your bucket list of what you want to do i mean it, it is it even doesn't have to be big things you know most people have big planes on that but are there just kind of like even everyday planes that you're like i would just love to fly a bunch of different things well you know i was i always kind of wanted to get on my ticket i've got the citation of 500e rating i always thought that i would like to get uh uh, uh, just on my ticket, uh, uh, the uh, DC-3, you know, and I was wow. going to fly, I was going to get it and fly over to England, and then my show got in the way of that. A bunch of guys flew a, a plane called Miss Montana over for the anniversary of D-Day, and I was sorry about that. So that's kind of on the bucket list, but, you know, the thing that I love about um, where I'm at right now is I love the airplanes I'm flying. I don't envy my old friends, John Travolta or Harrison or anybody for the airplanes they own or fly. I, I have a panel in the, uh, in the Aztec. It feels like I'm in a Gulfstream 5 that goes 150 <laughs> miles an hour. Uh, it's the most extraordinary panel. The Cub is just the Cub. It's just, you know, you get in and you just go fly. And I can't imagine wanting anything more or bigger. You know, when I had the... Uh, the chief and I probably filled it up 10% of the time and I was burning 50 gallons an hour. Now I'm burning 25, you know, Aztec and the gas, you know, gas, I, I slowed way down on my flying this year. Mm. Um, barely just kept training. I basically was, you know, once every two weeks two three hours of approaches. Um, so I, 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 it's a great feeling to think, to love where you live and to love your airplanes and not, kind of go oh i'd like to have that you know i mean if, if i if i were rolling in it i probably would get a a robinson used r44 you know uh or an r22 that i could keep in the barn because i love flying helicopters that mm -hmm. would be nice and I, and I may well do that if, if i hit the next tv series i'll probably will get a robbie and put a barn around it because they're really <laughs> fun to go play what's the last yeah. time you flew a helicopter oh gosh um it was here there's a guy that had one it was a uh, it was uh well they call it a raven now the r44 but it was the last time was the r44 i think um i don't miss it terribly but i love it when i do it and just, the problem is in la you rent them like avis rent-a-cars you know they were just as long as you were a good pilot in them and you were safe you could go rent them or a bunch of flight schools you could just take the helicopter for three hours but uh those 
out here, it, they're very, there's nowhere near here that you can just go and say, I want to check out and, and come rent on occasion. Mm. So, so I, I think what I just kind of did was put it aside until I could afford one used, but they're, they're not cheap used anymore. They're also very expensive. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I've got plenty of, I barely have time to fly the two airplanes. I keep working. I keep thinking I'm going to take a break and then something comes up and I go, oh, I got to do that. That's good. And particularly this. I love, I love my job now. So it doesn't, doesn't make not flying too painful. Exactly. I'm just, waiting, I'm just waiting for, you know, when March comes and the weather starts to turn good again, I'll be back in the cockpit a lot, you know? So. Absolutely. Yeah, I do love it. I do love it. I, it is, it is, a, 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 I, I think I say to friends of mine to get their license, it, it's such a gift to have that skill to be able to get in a machine and leave the ground, particularly when you get instrument rating, we leave the ground in bad weather and fly to good weather. Who gets to yep. do that? You know, I mean, we're so blessed with that skill. Uh, I still take it, you know, I'm still in awe of, of, of how we figured out how to fly. And I'm still very much in awe of, uh, of that uh, that ability that we have to fly, and also that those wonderful people who designed airplanes for us. Absolutely, and, you know, it, it it can change. Certainly, an area like New England, you can you can get around and uh, where geography is generally in your way, um, but you can do a lot of things in aviation, as you said. There's it's always it's always sunny, uh, at least uh, during daylight above the clouds, and you can go. Yeah. You can always get to visit that. That's another part of the church of it all. You know, I think one of the most joyous things is when you take off on a rainy day and you're flying west to Ohio or someplace on your first leg of a trip. And the weather's really crappy and you take off out of Rutland and you're climbing out at about 5,500, 6,000. The opaqueness comes and then the sky starts getting brighter and brighter. It's almost like you need sunglasses, even though you can't see. And then all of a sudden there's this, and you pop out of the clouds and there's this clear blue, you know, and you're skimming along the top and you go, this is pretty cool. And now I've been doing this for 50 years and I still go, this is pretty cool that I can do this. You know? <laughs> that little pop out on top is always a, the, the greatest feeling, you know. Absolutely. It's a, it's a good feeling. Well, treat thank I miss you it. So I can't wait so to do much. my trip. Huh? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You can say what? I was going to start wrapping up, but you were saying. Wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. I'm boring myself. I want to watch a movie with my family. <laughs> <laughs> One that you're in? <laughs> no, no, never do that. This is what I was in. I'm going to show everybody. This is what oh, I was man. in. This is my six. That's gorgeous. Huh? It's got, a, oh. you got your tail number and everything. I didn't have the, the antenna here. I took that off, actually. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a great airplane. USA up, both sides of the wing. So, yeah. so cool. Pretty cool, pretty cool. That was a lot of fun. But what we're doing now is fun, too. So you and I are going to fly together. Yes, sir. Soon. We will do that, and I'll get you out to Alton Bay as well. Oh, good. Okay. I'd we'll love that. That's this that. winter. Yeah, we'll do that before the board gets warm. I'd yeah, love absolutely. that. Well, this was fun as usual. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for taking time out and joining us this evening. I cannot wait to see your show on FX, uh, Feud Capote's Women. It's that, pretty good. I recommend that, it highly. You know, you're, you're talking about this in a way that is above other things I've ever heard you talk about. This is going to be good. I know this no. is going to be good just no. simply by your enthusiasm for it. This is very special. And, and Naomi Watts and Tom Hollander are both going to get Emmy Awards for this. They're so good. And I'll ride on their coattails. <laughs> <laughs> they can drag me All along. Right. <laughs> All right, Tree. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. I really Thank appreciate you. it. God bless. Night. Have a wonderful evening. Be well. See ya. And thanks to all of you for taking time out of your evening to join us here again on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next week, Tuesday, December 27th at 8 p.m. as always, but this time with Robert Hayes, Captain Ted Stryker from Airplane, the movie. This is going to be so much fun. So if you want to treat during the holidays, 
be sure to tune in for this show. I can tell you from uh, knowing Bob Hayes that he has stories that will just keep you going and uh, have you rolling on the floor. He's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful guy. And I cannot wait to have him here on Social Flight Live. This is our last show before Christmas, so Merry Christmas to all of you celebrating that, and Happy Hanukkah to those of you celebrating another night of Hanukkah. And um, again, thank you, because you make general aviation what it is. We're just here to help uh, entertain, communicate, and bring us all together to support general aviation. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight. Blue skies. (laughs) 